We're now going to spend some time listening to the Word of God in Mark chapter 14. As you're turning there, I can forecast for you, we have uh, this week and two more weeks in the Gospel of Mark, and we're going to spend one week on the remainder chapter. So we're actually going to um, look at all of Mark chapter 14 and, and really zoom in on one story, and we'll do the same thing for Mark 15 and 16. And, um, and then we are going to start a new summer series, uh, and I'm excited to announce what that is very shortly, but um, usually the last few summers we've been looking at the wisdom writing, so we might be in that uh, area of the Bible again. But you're in Mark chapter 14, so we, we won't go through the entire verse-by-verse verse details of this chapter. We're going to look at one story that really is right in the middle of the chapter, and it highlights this theme of Mark chapter 14, that there's this surprising dark cloud that is covering the disciples and Jesus, and uh, it's a culmination of all of the ministry that they've done leading Christ to the cross. And it's a surprising moment of the story, um, it's almost out of place, the mood and the weightiness, when you consider all of the celebration that is actually happening in Jerusalem where they are in this moment. It, it, I was reminded of some ways that sometimes the, the, the cloud feels out of place. This morning, as I woke up to, to read the word again, preparing for this morning, as preaching God's word with our church, and lo and behold... We have one of these days. Are you guys sick of these days? We're so close to being done with winter and cold. And then I look out, ready to welcome in the sunshine and the heat of the day. And it's rain again. And it's clouds again. And how many times do we have to kiss winter goodbye before we're done? And yet, once again today, confirmed, I just looked outside. We have another dark and gloomy day. And I, I just, it's out of place. It needs to be sunshine now. It's May and yet, we have a moment of scripture that reminds us, as we study this this morning, that at times in life, there will be a dark cloud that seems out of place. There will be a dark cloud that seems out of place to the plans and the desire and the momentum that you have in your life. As I was preparing this earlier in the week, I ran into a woman who's just come back to our church after a, a, over a year away so excited to be returning, excited that she, she is getting the call back from the Lord just to be part of the community of believers. And yet her story of why she was away had everything to do with trouble and sorrow that was so out of place she didn't know where she fit in anymore. She had just mourned the loss of a child. And she wasn't sure how to fit in with seemingly joyful and excited believers every Sunday morning. And she wasn't even sure how to relate to God because sometimes, although this is out of place, sometimes when we go through trouble in our life and sorrow in our life and we're expecting sunshine and we get rain, we feel like something's wrong. Like Christianity and following Jesus is, is going well when I'm doing well. And then when the unsuspected trouble hits, we're not sure what happened, but something feels out of sorts. And so that's why this moment in the life and ministry of Christ with his disciples preceding the cross is so important for our understanding of who we're putting our faith and our trust into. A, an out-of-place shadow as Jesus, again, looking at Holy Week in the last 
portion of the Gospel of Mark, has been welcomed into Jerusalem with a parade. We studied that on Palm Sunday. Everyone is excited. They have palms, and they're laying their coats before him, singing messianic psalms, Hosanna in the highest. You've come to save us. Excitement in the air. And there's pilgrims from all over Israel, the north and the south, who have come to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover, a feast, a time of excitement. And yet, there's a dark cloud that overshadows all of it. And as Jesus prepares the Passover feast in the, in the upper room with his disciples, throughout Mark chapter 14, he's going to describe to them all sorts of troublesome things that await them. Betrayal. Uh, disciples will deny him. And eventually, he is going to fulfill his mission, which is not to reign as an earthly king, but to conquer spiritual death by hanging on a cross and rising again. And this is his hour. Where in the midst of a seemingly celebratory city, Jesus is going to go through sorrow and agony like none of us have ever experienced. And that's what we study today. The goal of us is... The goal of all of this is so that we would be believers who do not think that following Jesus means joy and celebration and success and prosperity all the way till heaven. But we realize that we, we follow a suffering Savior. And when you go through your moments, like some of you are going through right now, of shadow, rain instead of sunshine, agony instead of joy, it doesn't mean you're doing it wrong. It actually means that God is bringing you closer to discipleship, not farther. And for those of you who aren't going through any of that right now, this is one of those sermons that will apply to all of us at some point. So take notes, put them away somewhere safe, and refer to them at a date that will come quite unexpectedly and sooner than you think. But we look at the story starting in Mark chapter 14, verse 32 says, then they came to a place which was named Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. So the story, we've already left the upper room. They've sung a hymn and they've gone to the Mount of Olives. His, all of his disciples are with him. And they were at the top of the Mount of Olives. And you descend down that same march that we studied on Palm Sunday. And at the, at the bottom of the Mount of Olives, there is a garden. And we were just there. So as has been a common theme since we returned to Israel. We share a photo of what this garden looked like. Here is the Garden of Gethsemane. And he says to his disciples, sit while he goes to pray. And with the garden in full view, I'll share things with you that I didn't know going into this garden. One of them is just what Gethsemane means. You think about the location, Mount of Olives at the top, full of olive trees where olives are harvested, not just to eat and put on salads like we enjoy, but to make oil. And Gethsemane literally means the oil press. And in this garden, it's believed that there was some sort of oil press where the olives could be processed to make oil. It is literally the garden of pressing or the place of pressing. And you think about the symbolism of that with what Jesus is about to walk through. When you process the olives to press them, what comes out is oil. 
And for his moment between him and his disciples and the Father in heaven, right before the cross, he is literally going to be pressed on all sides to the point of agony. And what comes out of him is why we study this scripture. We will ask the question today so that we do not become disciples who think we're disqualified in times of sorrow, but we study harder. How does Jesus go through the place of pressing and what comes out of him so that he, on the other side of it, conquers and obeys, which is what will happen to all of your life. What comes out of your life when you're pressed? When something happens to you in the form of unexpected death or tragedy, when panic hits your body, when the phone rings and you get news that you had no plans of hearing, when life presses not just your body but your soul, what comes out of you? As disciples of Christ, we want to answer that question with the exact same answer that the master shows us. So he's at the place of pressing. And in verse 33, it says that he took Peter, James, and John with him and began to be troubled and deeply distressed. Throughout the Gospel of Mark, this will be our third time where we see Jesus with all of his disciples, or the select 12, and then he takes three on a special mission. We saw it in the house of Jairus when he raised a girl from the grave. We saw it on the Mount of Transfiguration when, we, when they saw a preview of the glorified Christ. And now we see once again that there are select three that get a special preview to something that Jesus needs them to know for further teaching. He's going to give them front row access into his life in his moment of agony. And one of the first things that we see as they view him walking deeper into the garden, it says that he began to be troubled and deeply distressed. This is a portion of scripture that is worth underlining because we live in a time not unlike a lot of times where Jesus is thought to be a remedy towards prosperity only. Balance your theology with this moment in the life of Christ. We follow a servant, or we, uh, a savior, who went through agony. Pain in his soul. Suffering. And it's important for us to realize that for more reasons than one. Already mentioned, you're not doing discipleship wrong when life gets hard. It's not due to your lack of faith. It's not due to your unwillingness to give so that you can sow seeds of faith and God can give back to you. Suffering is part of the discipleship. But it also helps us understand how Christ relates to our lives. We believe in a God who clothed himself in humanity and came to us. It is unlike any other God that you will ever study or hear about. The God who left his throne room of heaven, it says in Philippians that he did not consider equality with God something to be held onto, but emptied himself and veiled himself as a bondservant of humans. He came to us in human flesh. This is one of those moments where we see Jesus as human. He's fully human and fully divine. And yet we live in a time more and more and more as a culture where people are looking for anything but Christ to be the God of their lives. As young people have 
left churches and, and now choose their own adventure as to what guides their life and what directs their steps, I find it so interesting that one of the common answers, because you cannot escape something being responsible for the sovereignty of your life. So a common phrase amongst the new upcoming generation, maybe you've heard it, is, I really feel like the universe put this all together. Well, that's what we would call the sovereignty of God, that when things are starting to point you in a certain direction, when you start to see God's hand of favor or discipline in your life, we as believers of a creator can point to the sovereignty of God. And there's this odd replacement with just this universe or force. And here's the problem with that practically. If you're someone who has thought, well, the universe, this is my lucky day. The universe is really helping me. The universe has just connected us. The universe is just, it's like give and return. Here's the problem. The universe doesn't care about you and it cannot relate to anything you've ever gone through. The universe has never wept for a friend. The universe has never had compassion on the lost. The universe has never actually gone through agony and sorrow to the point of trouble. And it's not just the universe that I'm disqualifying as a God who can actually relate and sympathize with the trouble of your soul. I now disqualify every other deity. There is one unique version of a God that loves humanity that is willing to send himself into humanity. And the reason that is so important is so that when we go through the trials of our life and we cry out to God, to the higher power, to the one that instinctively we know must be out there to help us. For those of us who look to Christ as the visible image of the invisible God, we are looking to a God who relates to our agony. The author of Hebrews says that we do not have a high priest or an intercessor between God and man who's unable to sympathize with all of our weakness. What we are studying in Christ today means that every bit of sorrow that the Holy Spirit has brought to your heart or reminded your mind of or allowed you to experience, none of it is unrelatable to the God that we cry help to. It says that Jesus was deeply distressed. And now as we begin to ask the question, how does Jesus deal with his time of trouble? We find our first answer in verse 34. It says that he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch. Jesus takes three disciples and they are on a living exercise of learning from the master. And they are also there as part of his strategy to deal with agony. Jesus did not have to bring anyone along with him. He brings his students and then he expresses his sorrow. He says to them, I am deeply distressed. So as we look at Christ and we contrast sometimes the way that we go through trouble in our lives, one of the things that we learn from him and say, let us not do this, is he actually lets it out of his soul. One of the challenges of coming to church with Sunday best, being part of a, a belief that God raises us from ashes and does something wonderful in our lives is this tendency to think that we're not allowed to have trouble. It's like, man, I'm going through a hard time, but 
I'll grin and bear it. And if you ask me how I'm doing, I'll say great. And if you ask follow-up questions, I'll end the conversation. And if I ask you how you're doing, I won't expect a real answer because that's all just a nicety. We don't actually need to know the condition of each other's soul. We're just here because we go to the same church. And that's not a good thing. It is not good to use this whole time together simply as a pursuit of individual experiences with God. We are, in fact, meant to seek God and then also fall in love with one another, whether you like it or not. It's one of the reasons that we have an entire uh, pastoral vision for trying not just to be a sanctuary church, but also putting each other's lives in smaller communities so that we can express things together, so that we can say things to each other that need to be a shared burden of the community. I was, uh, years ago, someone told me this in Europe. And it's stuck with me ever since to just define how often we leave things at a nicety and never go further. Uh, in, in Europe, they find it strange that we, we say as just a common phrase, how you doing? You ask that to a European who isn't otherwise privy to how surface that is. And they're like, what do you mean? How am I doing? You don't know me. <laughs> Why do you ask? And you have to explain to them, that's actually just a phrase. We don't really care. It's just like saying hi. <laughs> And uh, one man from Holland said, um, the best way to describe Americans is they have big open doors or big open windows and securely locked doors. That's kind of a good way to put it, isn't it? You can look in, but you can't come in. <laughs> you can see me from the outside, but you'll never know what's going on on the inside. Jesus goes into his hour of greatest despair. As Messiah, the coming one they've been waiting for, the master, the miracle worker, the wise teacher, confounding all of the religious authorities of his day. And he says, guys, I'm struggling. And you'll hear this phrase throughout our time reading this example of Christ. How much more? If Christ himself, he who knew no sin, lived a perfect life, expresses sorrow in a way to allow others to Stand watch while he goes deeper into the intimacy of prayer with the Father. How much more are we meant to express sorrow to one another? So what are the questions that can be asked this morning for you to ponder? Do you have people in your life that when the dark cloud hits, you will be ready to express sorrow to? That you would not be alone in your time of need? If the answer is no, please, as a church community, allow us to serve you in that way, to put you into a community of believers that can so often almost be stereotypical. It's like you come to a big church, you hear you got to get into a community. Here's the purpose behind it, that none of us would ever be alone in our time of need. Second thing, it says in verse 35, Watch, therefore, or excuse me, in, in verse 35, Mark chapter 14. He went a little farther and fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. Some of you think, well, I'm, I'm very good at actually expressing my emotions to people. I, I'm, I'm ready to graduate to the next part of the sermon. Well, here it is. Of course, the sermon does not stop. The story does not end with Jesus telling his disciples that he's in agony. He tells them to stand watch, and he goes deeper 
He goes farther into the garden. He falls on his face and he gets to the moment with the father that defines all agony. And this is the answer for your life as well. You cannot stop for the answer of your strategy in a time of need with I've got some good Christian friends around me. I'm in a community group. They can stand watch and they can help you and they can support you. But when you want to follow the example of Jesus, it says he goes further into the garden and then he falls on his face. And this goes back to the place of the pressing. What comes out of you when your life is pressed? If you're like Christ, sorrow is expressed to disciples and then the pressing turns into a desperate time of prayer. A time with the Father that becomes his lifeline. And that is, in fact, one of the beautiful ways that God will use the trouble of our lives. In one of the ways we see the paradoxical nature of how God brings us closer to him, it is not simply by coming to church and knowing the Bible and getting really good at all of the functions of a church. There are times in your life when everything becomes so disoriented that the only hope that you have is God himself. And unfortunately for our own desire to stay comfortable and safe, it seems as though trouble is the best way to God himself. How many of our testimonies to our first prayer, our first fall on your face prayer, have something to do with trouble that surrounded your life preceding your moment of crying out to God? Jesus expresses his sorrow and Jesus begins to pray. And now, because prayer is the key to all of this, we're, we're going to spend and emphasize this next part of the story because in this next part of the story, we get details into a moment that Jesus has with his father that will inform all effective and righteous prayer. This is not a Hail Mary prayer. This is not a, a prayer to check it off the list and then get busy doing work. This is a prayer that in some ways fulfills the model prayer that Jesus gave to his disciples when they asked him to teach them how to pray. In verse 36, we get the details of what it was that Jesus said in his greatest hour of need. And we'll look at this prayer in three parts. First, it says in verse 36, And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. An effective prayer is a prayer of absolute trust. And where do we get the, the call that, or the, 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 the model of Jesus' trust in the Father? In that one simple word, Abba. There's an Aramaic word that Jesus uses. It, it comes up later in the book of Romans to describe the Father not as a distant formal title for a father, but as, in our language, his dad. The trust that a son would have for their dad. And I love the season I'm, of life I'm in as a father because I live still within the, the age frames of kids who are in that Abba season. 
Now, eventually, we all grow up, and our childlike faith turns into adult responsibilities, and, and daddies become fathers. And it's a sad day, but it takes on some responsibility. My kids look to me as dad. And there are times when that's just a, a title, but there are also times when they cry to me as dad. In fact, this week, I, uh, Daniela went out of town. Uh-oh. <laughs> the start of all good stories. <laughs> And within, she was out of town for 24 hours. Within the first 30 minutes, our, our third youngest, our youngest daughter, was running right out there and fell face first on the pavement and broke her arm. I'm sorry to tell you that. <laughs> and from the moment that it broke until we eventually left the ER, she was living within this window of Abba Father. I went from, in, in times you take on these roles of caretaker or a disciplinarian, putting her to bed, picking her up from school, taking her to the next thing, making her food, all of these roles that I'm happy to fulfill, but then there are times when something tragic happens to the life of a child, something painful, something scary, and they don't need just those roles fulfilled, they need an Abba Father. And it was the joy of a tragedy for me to hold her close as her Abba, as her person that she can look to in her moment of great despair. She ran to me, she stayed close to me, she wanted to be around no one else but me, and this is what is being modeled in the life of Christ. You think about what Christ knows about the unfolding of events that are about to occur. He has rightfully already predicted a coming betrayal. He knows that he will be scourged and beat and put to death. And also somewhere in his heart is Psalm chapter 22 where he will fulfill the messianic suffering cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? when for the first and only time in the history of this world, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, perfect unity will be divided. And the Father will turn his face away from the Son who is boring the sins of the world, and he will feel the weight of that moment. And even with that, on the horizon, the agony that awaits him from that moment, he says, Dad... I need your help. And every single one of you are being called back to the primary purpose of our gathering and very existence. It is not to make you good church attendance. It is not to turn this whole thing into a, a mechanism of raising money and sending to missionaries. All of these flow from primary focus that every single one of us, by the born-again reality of the Holy Spirit in us would learn the relationship of God as an Abba Father. The first commandment is that you'd love him. That you'd love him like a broken-hearted child cries out to a father. That is your existence. That is what you were made for, is to say Abba. And God will get you there any way that he can. 
and we begin to make sense of darkness and trial and tragedy, when we begin to view them as reasons to know the love of the father to the son, to the daughter. All of this is rooted in the foundation of the father's love for the son and all of your impending and challenging times is pulling you into that relationship. And second, we have a prayer of faith. Prayer of trust turns into a prayer of faith that says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. You can do anything. And without that confidence in the God that we've sang praises to, in the, in the Holy Spirit that inspired the words on this page, and the God who sovereignly oversees the details of your life, you cannot pray. You cannot pray until you believe that by the power of God, all things are possible. You can recite things. You can use eloquent speech, and you can point it at God. You can check prayer off a list of religion, but you cannot see prayer turn into a lifeline to the Father in heaven until you believe that the God who created all things out of nothing with his word, that the God who sent his son to show his power by defeating death and raising him from the grave, breathing life, is the same God that says he can work all things together for good for those who love him. All things are possible with our God. And Jesus believed that. And it is the time of agony when you get pressed on all sides where the love of the Father will give you the faith to believe that by the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. And it is only with a prayer of trust turning into a prayer of faith that you begin to walk through agony, not as a disqualification, but as something that is actually building you up to be more full in the calling of God in your life. We have the prayer of faith when he says, all things are possible. And what is this prayer of faith pointing his prayer life to? It says, all things are possible. Take this cup from me. Jesus has already encouraged his disciples, you have not because you ask not. Ask of the Father. Make your requests known. In your time of trouble, let your sorrow expressed turn into prayer in your life. Telling God verbally what is on your heart. He says, please take the cup from me. What is the cup? We alluded to it. The cup is the wrath of God poured out on all ungodliness. It is the cup that points him to the cross where he will be the Passover lamb of God on Passover, sent to take away the sin of the world. And just as those who were celebrating the Passover feast remembered the lamb that was killed in Egypt to take away the wrath of the destroyer sent to kill the firstborn son and anyone who stood under that threshold would be freed from slavery in Egypt. 
We now have the fulfillment of the cup. The wrath of God is finally dealing in his justice with all the injustices of the world. And because God so loved the world, he sent his son to bear the cup so that you wouldn't have to. So that your sin and the sin that enslaved you like slaves in Egypt to itself could be crucified on a cross that was not yours. Every single one of us. And it is this prayer and request that turns into the final moment for all of us to receive, to look at the model of Christ as gospel good news and to learn and follow him and by the grace of God be a disciple in the same way that he dealt with his agony, we deal with ours. His prayer of trust and faith turns into a prayer of submission. If it is possible to take the cup and yet... Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. It was not an either-or prayer. It was not a prayer that told the Father what he had to do. It was a request that submitted to the sovereignty and the divine decree that it would be the cross of Christ to fulfill all the promises leading up to this point that the Messiah would come and set people free. And it is this moment where we study this and once again we reject all other false gods and false forms of salvation. If there was another way, if you could do more good than bad and somehow fall into some sort of karma that is better this life than it was last, Christ doesn't die. If you could offer your own feeble attempts at righteousness and doing well and being a good religious person, Christ doesn't die. If there was another God that could save, if there was a law that could be given, and yet, by divine decree, he submits to the will of the Father, making it one narrow way to heaven. There is no other name under heaven by which men must be saved. This is salvation. The cup that fell upon the cross of Christ is the wrath of God dealing with sin and the love of God saving your soul and there is no other way. He is the way, he is the truth, and he is the life and any God you give your life to other than him will not save your soul, but it will waste your life. And it is maybe the, the final level of prayer to learn in your moment of agony that the Father who loves you and can do all things knows what is best for you and you can trust him even in the darkness. So I come back to the story of my daughter with a broken arm. You take a daughter to the emergency room and they will very quickly begin to plea with you. And she, the closer we got to the ER, the more she realized that she was gonna go see a doctor. And in her little mind, all she knew was that doctors are scary. 
And I had to kind of plea with her to get her in here. She, at one point she said, Dad, I promise if you take me home and we don't have to go to the doctor, I'll go home and I won't cry anymore. <laughs> I thought that is such a sweet plea. But I'm your father and I know what's best for you. I know that as scary as this seems, if we go see the doctor, he will actually heal you and he will set it to straight and he will take away the pain eventually and this is the way out of the mess that you've been made. And eventually she yielded. She submitted not to her will to go home with a broken arm, but to the will of her father to take her into the emergency room and they gave her an x-ray and they saw that it was broken and they put a splint on it and eventually a cast. And to further illustrate the childlike faith of my daughter and the love that she had for her father, we get home and she says, Dad, do you know why I didn't want to go to the doctor? And I said, no. And she said, I thought they were going to take my arm off. <laughs> and of course, I realized that she put her head on my shoulder and she listened to my words when I promised that we were going to go into the emergency room and I was going to hold her hand and I would never leave her or forsake her and I'd be here the whole time and eventually this would turn into her healing, that she trusted me at the cost of her own arm. And this is, in fact, what it means to yield to God. That you would trust him at the cost of your own plan, at something that you might hold dear to you, at something that God may call you from and it's actually part of his divine sovereignty to heal you and set you free. And so often we're unwilling to yield because we don't trust that if we get to the operating table, the Father in heaven is actually good. But in this story, in this moment with Christ, he puts his life into the Father's hands. Not just his arm, not just his plans, his dreams, his desires, 10% of his money, his church on Sunday. He puts his whole life into the Father's hand and models for us that it was good. And once again, we say, how much more can we submit to the will of the Father knowing that he who did not spare his own son, how much more will he freely give all things to us? The rest of the story ends with a contrast, with what we see in Christ contrasted by what we see in the disciples. It says, then he came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, are you sleeping? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, he went and prayed and spoke the same words. And when he returned, he found them sleeping again for their eyes were heavy and they did not know what to answer him. Then he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. We now see a contrast reminding you of this literary device that Mark so wisely uses as he interweaves more than one story happening at the same time throughout his gospel. And this is another moment where we have to understand the story happening within the story. In Jesus, we see someone who is feeling agony and he's suffering and he understands and sympathizes with us in all of our weakness. And yet he 
prevails. And what do we see in his disciples? Three times they fell asleep. And what is the story this reminds us of? Well, the beginning and end of this story is Jesus warning his disciples, quoting Zechariah, when the shepherd is struck, the sheep will scatter. You will all betray me. None of you will make it through the hour of testing and prevail. And what does Peter say? I don't care if everyone forsakes you, Lord, I won't. I will die for you if I have to. And in a way that Mark purposely interweaves into both stories, there is a prediction that Jesus gives Peter. Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. After the Garden of Gethsemane, of course that happens, but during the garden, we get a fulfillment of the denial. Stay watch, lest you fall asleep. Three times, a third time, Peter is caught sleeping. And the lesson for Peter, the lesson for us, as we look at the fork in the road and we see all of the agony that awaits us in ways that are unexpected, the spirit is willing, the flesh is weak. When he found Peter, he said, the spirit is willing. You were so confident, Peter. You said that everyone would deny me except you, and you were going to die with me, and now you're asleep. You couldn't even watch. How true it is. We are such excitable people. We listen to a sermon on Sunday. The ladies go to a women's retreat. You listen to some songs. You get excited in your car, and our life has been changed through one sermon, one song, one retreat. We're never going to sin again. We're going to follow Jesus with all of our lives. We're going to see it through to the end. We just want Jesus to come back and get on with the end of the world because we can't wait to pass all the tests. No problem. Your spirit is willing. But you get the same answer that Peter got. Your flesh is weak. You cannot do it. You will not survive the, the dark cloud that awaits you. The, the only way to do this is to follow Jesus in it when he fell on his face and he cries out to the Father for help. We do not do this to build up the confidence that we have in ourselves. As you grow in Christ, you have this beautiful reminder of John the Baptist in the very beginning, he must increase, I must decrease. In this world, you have much trouble, and it will crush you, and it will be too heavy for your shoulders to bear, and you will not prevail. But take heart, Christ has overcome. We come here as a weekly exercise to exchange all of our strength for the strength of Christ. You don't prevail. Peter doesn't prevail. Your flesh will fail you. Last week, the whole message was be watchful. This week, we get a picture of what being watchful means. Are we people who love God and seek him and trust him with everything in our lives? Or are we checking off the list of religion, putting the good in the category of success, putting the bad in the category of confusing? The only answer for our generation is to fall in love with God and seek him and know him intimately. And Jesus says, to end it all, rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Jesus sees the torches coming from the east gate of Jerusalem down to the Kidron Valley, walking up to the 
garden that he is praying in. His disciples are asleep, and he says, look it, here they come. And he says, rise. Jesus faces the agony and the sorrow of his life head on. He doesn't flee back to Bethany. He doesn't fight, put away your sword. He stands in the grace of God with faith in the goodwill of the Father, and he prevails. For all of you who are under the dark cloud now, learn from the model of Christ. Don't be alone. Express your sorrow with other disciples and run to the presence of God. Fall on your face before him and audibly call upon his name. And for those of us who are waiting for the hour to come, be watchful. In this world, you will have trouble. Don't be surprised. I'll end with one final, maybe even Easter egg moment of this whole story because we look at Jesus as the, the picture of victory and prevailing. We look at Peter as a reminder that no matter how hard we try, we will fail. And yet, lest any one of us think this message is a condemnation towards our own failure, look how far Peter came. Peter didn't stay down. After he denied Christ, he was restored by Christ. He was filled by the power of the Holy Spirit. He preached the gospel on Pentecost. He helped lead the first church. And then he put into Holy Scripture by the power of the Holy Spirit maybe the best way this whole lesson was learned on in his life. In 1 Peter chapter 5, he says, Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. Cast all your care upon him, for he cares for you. May we humbly fall under the mighty hand of our sovereign God who loves us and revealed himself to us as a father in heaven. May we trust that in due time he will lift us out of the darkness we find ourselves in and may we give him all of our care and all of our worry because he actually cares for us.